Welcome to LaGrave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast. Maybe with everything going on in the world, both in 2020 and past history, the resurrection is one of those things that you're unsure about. Maybe it seems too good to be true. Maybe it just seems impossible. Paul brings us reassurance in this week's sermon passage. You're listening to Reason to Believe, Can a Modern Person Believe in the Resurrection? by Reverend Peter Yonker. Our Bible reading today comes from uh, Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 15, and I'll read the first 20 verses of 1 Corinthians 15. And this is a continuation of our apologetics series, the Reason to Believe series, where we're, we're looking at some of the challenges and questions of our faith, and we're seeing what Scripture has to say in answer to those challenges. And today's challenge is, Can a modern person, can a sensible person, can a thinking person really believe in something like a physical resurrection, in a dead body coming back to life? And that's clearly what Paul is talking about in these verses. Listen. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, He appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and the sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. For I'm the least of the apostles and do not deserve to even be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you have believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but, he did not raise, but if he did not raise him, in fact, and if, in fact, the dead are not raised, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. 
This is the word of the Lord. Wherever we go in this world, we are surrounded by death. Now, I don't mean to start this sermon off uh, with an excessively gloomy note when I say something like that. I'm trying to be matter of fact. It's simply true. Death is everywhere. Because all living things die, right? Plants and trees and animals and insects and people too. So you can't even go on a walk through your neighborhood and not encounter death. Dead insects, dead plants, dead animals. It's a fact of life. We see it every day. And you'd think, seeing it every day, that we might get used to it. But you'd be wrong. Death still has power to harm us and hurt us. Death still has power to scare us and perplex us. You all know the children's television show Sesame Street. It's been on the air for over 50 years. And it is introduced to us some of our favorite sort of public pop culture characters. Characters like the Cookie Monster and Ernie and Bert and Kermit the Frog and Big Bird. One of the most famous uh, Sesame Street episodes ever occurred in 1982. That was a long time ago. And it occurred involving one of the lesser known characters, someone named Mr. Hooper. I wonder how many of you out there actually remember Mr. Hooper. You have to be old like me. But Mr. Hooper was the proprietor of the store on Sesame Street and a great friend of Big Bird. What happened is that the actor who played Mr. Hooper, a guy named Will Lee, suddenly died. He died of a heart attack. And the producers of the show were, were faced with, it, with a problem. What did they do? Did they replace Mr. Hooper with another actor and pretend nothing happened? Did they just sort of write Mr. Hooper out of things as if nothing had gone wrong? Or did they address the death of Mr. Hooper head on? They decided to do the latter. They decided to have Big Bird find out about the death of his friend and have Big Bird wrestle with the loss of one of the people he loved most in the world. And in this famous episode, Big Bird was bringing a picture that he'd drawn for Mr. Hooper to Mr. Hooper's store to give to him when he ran into Susan, who was one of the, the, the women on the show. And Susan gave him the bad news that Mr. Hooper wasn't there anymore. Here's how it went. Well, that's fine, said Big Bird. I'll just wait until he comes back, and I'll give him the picture then. Oh, Big Bird, said Susan. Mr. Hooper isn't coming back. Why not, said Big Bird. Well, Big Bird, when people die, they don't come back. Never? No, never. Why not? They're dead, Big Bird. They can't come back. Big Bird can't accept this. And he says, I don't understand. You know, everything was just fine. I mean, why does it have to be this way? Give me one good reason. Big Bird, it has to be this way because... Just because? Just because. 
That is a sad and honest and powerful moment. Sad because it captures how death can still hurt people and honest because it shows how perplexed people are about death. Scientists, philosophers, poets, musicians, artists, they've all wrestled with death and sometimes the best answer that people out there can come up with in the face of death is just because. Of course, as people of the risen Jesus, we have a better answer than that. When we face death, we can say more than just because. We can say, hallelujah. We can say, Christ is risen. And we do say that. We get together every week and we say exactly that. We believe that we get together and we say the Apostles' Creed and we say, Christ is risen and he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. But that doesn't mean that we're not sometimes perplexed too. That doesn't mean that sometimes for some of us, and maybe even for most of us, that there are dark times and hard times where we wonder, is it all really true? Is, did Christ really rise? Am I really going to rise? Or is it all wishful thinking? It's an understandable question. It was a question asked, it's been asked for a long time. It was even a question asked after the first Easter those kinds of doubts appeared right after Jesus was born. I talked about Thomas a moment ago, but another example of that is Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. You remember, Jesus tells the disciples to go ahead of, them into, go ahead of him into Galilee, and they do, and they go to a mountainside, and Jesus meets them there. And when Jesus arrives, they're overjoyed, and they fall down and they worship Jesus, but verse 17 says... And some doubted. So even with Jesus standing right in front of them, living Jesus, alive Jesus, with, with the nail holes in his hands, even then there was something in their mind that said, wow, is this real? Is this actually happening or am I just imagining things? It doesn't help for us modern people when it comes to the resurrection. And there's lots of people out there, um, especially aggressive atheists, who tell us that Believing in a resurrection is absolute foolishness. In a debate with a Christian professor, Richard Dawkins, who's one of those aggressive atheists, said this. He said, The resurrection of Jesus has a fundamental incompatibility with sophisticated science. It's so petty, so trivial, it's so local, it's so earthbound, it's so unworthy of the universe, said Richard Dawkins. So there's, there's a sort of contempt of the idea, right? And, and you're made to feel if you believe in this, it's like believing in unicorns and Santa Claus. To read our passage, it's pretty clear that the Corinthian church was also struggling to believe the resurrection. And it seems likely that the reason for that has to do with their own experience of death. When Paul first came to, to preach to them, Paul promised them, Jesus shall return, he's coming back in glory, and he will judge the living and the dead. And when the Corinthians heard this, and this was true of a lot of early Christians, they thought that would happen really soon. They thought, well, Jesus will come back in maybe a month or two months or a year at most. But when that started to stretch out, their thinking started to change. So, for example, they, 
they, uh, you know, they would, the people around them started to die. And when they saw their friends dying, their fellow church members, their fellow believers dying, they realized that death looked more or less the same as it always had. It was still painful. It was still cold. And they began to say, well, maybe we got that wrong. You know, maybe resurrection is a little different than we thought. Maybe it wasn't a physical resurrection. Maybe what we should expect is some sort of spiritual enlightenment, some sort of spiritual resurrection. That, you know, when our hearts are filled with ecstasy, when we're lifted up in a moment of transcendence, that's resurrection. So, like, maybe when we speak in tongues and we get carried away, maybe that's what, what resurrection really is. The Corinthians started to spiritualize resurrection, and that's what they love to do. If you read the whole letter, that's what they're always doing. They're spiritualizing things. What does Paul have to say to what the Corinthians start to believe about resurrection? What does Paul have to say to all of us as if we struggle and if we have any doubts about this great doctrine? Well, first of all, Paul is pretty clear about the importance of the resurrection in our life. Paul doesn't like any ideas of resurrection as a metaphor. He insists, no, resurrection is physical. Jesus actually physically rose from the tomb and you will actually physically rise from the tomb. And if, if you don't believe that, then your faith is in vain. Your faith is futile. If there is no resurrection, we are of all people most to be pitied, he says in verse 19. Without the resurrection, we may as well pack up the tent and go home. But Paul also says more than that. He doesn't just sort of proclaim the resurrection is true in a loud voice. He also does some apologetics. He gives the people some reasons to believe that this doctrine is true. And specifically in this passage, what he does is he points to the witnesses. He says, hey guys, if you don't believe me, ask one of the other 12 disciples. They were there. Ask the women. Ask James. Hey, I can name you 500 more people who all saw Jesus alive after the resurrection. Ask any one of them. Most of them are alive, says Paul. That's apologetics. He's doing the same thing that we would do if someone disbelieved some statement we'd made. He said, hey, I was driving up to Rockford and I saw a moose by the side of the road. What are you talking about? There's no way. I don't believe that. Well, if you don't believe me, ask Bob, ask Mary, ask Joe. They were all in the car with me, right? That's what Paul is doing. Ask the witnesses. I'm not the only one saying that. They all saw it. Of course, some people will say, and people like Richard Dawkins would say, well, of course the witnesses will say that they saw Jesus alive. That's part of the conspiracy. They've all been coached in a story. You know, Jesus' body was stolen from the grave and then everyone made up a story and they all stuck to it. But if you look carefully at Scripture, it is highly unlikely that these witnesses were part of some conspiracy. And for the main part of my sermon, I want to give you five reasons why you should believe the witnesses that Christ is alive. Five reasons why you can believe with confidence that the testimony that Jesus rose from the grave is true. Reason number one. If you're going to make up a story about a resurrection, if you're going to make a conspiracy, you don't start with 500 people. Paul says there's 500 witnesses to the resurrection. If you're going to start a comparison, you go with maybe 10 or 15 because you want to keep the circle small. If you go to 500, somebody's going to slip, right? 
Somebody's going to just get tired of the conspiracy and say, ah, we made it all up. Or under pressure, under persecution, someone's going to say, yeah, it's all not true. It's just, it's just a ruse. Somebody stole the body. You don't start with 500 people when you want to do a conspiracy. The only reason Paul mentions 500 is because this is true. There really were 500 people who actually saw Jesus alive. Reason number two. The fact that the gospel accounts of the resurrection are different points to the truth of the resurrection. Say that again. The fact that the gospel accounts of the resurrection are different, that they don't have exactly the same detail, actually points to the truth of the witness. Let me explain. You read all the gospels, they don't tell the story in exactly the same way. And sometimes they get the, they, um, for lack of a better word, differ on some of those details. So for example, who are the women who came to the tomb? John says it was Mary Magdalene. You read John, it sounds like just Mary Magdalene came to the tomb. You read Matthew, and it's Mary Magdalene and also Mary, the mother of James. You read Mark, and it's Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and someone named Salome. And if you read Luke, he just says, the women. Okay, so there are all these little differences. Now, of course, all those accounts agree on the most important thing, that Jesus is risen, but they differ in the details. Now, if you were making a conspiracy, you wouldn't allow any of those differences to stand. It's like in the movies, right? When the bad guys want an alibi, what do they do? Okay, everybody, the cops are coming. Let's get our story straight. Here's what we were doing. Here's what we said. And they make up a story, and every single person has all the details exactly the same. If you're making a conspiracy, you wouldn't allow these differences to remain, and that's because... These aren't part of a made-up story. They're a witness. They're true. They're actual accounts of the memories of the people. And just like in real life, the witnesses remember things slightly differently, but the substance of the thing, they all see the same. The differences make the witnesses more believable. Another reason to believe the witnesses and the truth of the resurrection, the women pains me uh, to offer this reason, but it's a good reason, so I'm going to do it. If you were in those days going to make a conspiracy and you wanted uh, to make it believable, you would never have women as the first ones to find the body. You would never have women as the first witnesses because in those days, women were not considered trustworthy. In fact, according to Tim Keller, women were not even allowed to testify in court. So if you were going to invent a witness for, the, for this conspiracy, you would find the most reliable person, a man who was very trustworthy, an esteemed individual in your circle, and that would be your first witness. That would be the person you'd have at the graveside. But the disciples didn't do that. They, the, they talked about the women because the women were the ones who were actually there. It's not a made-up story. It's real. It's true. Fourth reason, I also find Paul's trust of the witnesses to be reliable because of the way the disciples portray themselves in Scripture, in the Gospels. In the Gospels, as we've already seen with Thomas, and as we already saw with the disciples on the mountainside when some of them doubted Jesus, there are all sorts of accounts of the disciples disbelieving and behaving badly. Again, if you wanted to create 
a story that was airtight and without doubt? Would you express the doubt of some of the people right in the story itself? No, you wouldn't. The fact that the disciples actually doubted in the story is also a reason to believe the testimony of the witnesses. Fifth and finally, maybe the strongest reason of all, I find the testimony of these witnesses to be reliable because they were willing to die for their testimony. Shortly after the disciples got up and started proclaiming that Jesus had risen from the dead, King Herod arrested James and put him in jail and eventually executed him. He died for this testimony. He died for this belief. And Peter and Paul and many, many others of these 500 paid for this testimony, paid for this witness with their lives. If this was a conspiracy, would they really go to their grave for the sake of a false witness? They weren't making money off this. They weren't getting any huge personal advantage. The only reason they stuck with this testimony, even to the point of death, is because they'd seen the risen Jesus and death didn't scare them. They had no fear of death. They were willing to be crucified and hung upside down. They were willing to be beaten. They were willing to be go through all sorts of things because they'd seen the risen Jesus and they knew that the fears of this earth meant nothing in the face of the resurrection. The testimony of the witnesses is reliable. I handed on to you, says Paul, what in turn I had received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. That he was buried. And that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas in the twelve. Here is the good news of the gospel. Here is good reliable news that you can put at the center of your life and put both your feet on it. Here is good news that you can stand on every day with hope and go out into the world without fear. Now, does this prove that the resurrection is true? No. You can't prove that the resurrection is true. We, we talked earlier in the sermon series, when it comes to foundational beliefs, beliefs that are way at the foundation of your whole worldview, those are things that you accept on faith. They're not provable. We can't prove that God exists. Atheists can't prove that God doesn't exist. Those are foundational beliefs. The resurrection is a foundational belief. But there are more than enough good reasons to believe the witnesses. There are more than enough good reasons to believe that this resurrection is historical, that it is true, and to take our stand on this hope. And we need this hope. What a terrible thing it would be if we had to face the troubles of this world and the troubles of our own heart, armed only with human hopes. What a terrible thing it would be if we had to face everything we see on the news, all the division, all the unrest, all the mistrust, and the only power we had against that was human institutions and human powers and human hearts. What a nightmare. But we believe that we do not stand and start in that place. There is a resurrection power, a resurrection hope at work in the world that is so much stronger than human hopes and that is pushing history along and that will make all things new. 
So to all of us who are terrified by the polarization in our society and who watch the news and just tear their hair out because it seems like there are irreconcilable differences in our nation, that people are operating out of two different completely different sets of facts, and you wonder, how are we ever going to come together around this? If you're starting to despair about that, let me say to you, Christ is risen. There is still hope. There is a way forward. And to the person wrestling with the diminishments of age, you feel your strength waning. And you used to be a person of significance, right? People would ask you to be on committees, They'd ask for your opinion on things. When you spoke up in a room, people listened. But now as you get older, your senses are dimming, your friends are dying, and people just aren't paying attention to you like they used to. It's hard. I declare to you, Christ is risen. There is hope. There is significance. There is a way through. And to the person, maybe a principal, or maybe administrator, or member of a board is trying to figure out how to get schools back in session, how to keep teachers safe and students safe, how to keep parents satisfied when half the parents think you're being foolhardy and half the parents think you're being way too fearful and you're overreacting and you know there's no way you're going to please everyone and somehow you've got to hold this institution together and everyone seems angrier than they ever have before and you're starting to despair, let me declare to you, Christ is risen. There's a power in the world greater than your wisdom. There's a way through. Paul says, if only for this life we have hope, we are of most people to be pitied. But Christ is risen, firstfruits of him who rose from the dead. Don't be afraid, people. Go out into the world and live every day in that good hope. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your work on the cross. And God the Father, I thank you for raising your son from the dead. And Holy Spirit, I thank you for planting this good news in our hearts. You know, Father, that sometimes just like Peter, we take our eyes off you and all we see are the winds and the waves and the problems Thank you that we can come back in worship and fix our eyes on you and know that you are Lord and know that you are alive and know that there is a way through. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grave Avenue CRC's Sermon Podcast.